Welcome to Technovation, a weekly conversation with people who are shaping the technology landscape. I'm Peter High, president of MetaStrategy, advisor to technology executives, Forbes columnist, book author, and your host. Each episode of Technovation features insights from top executives and thought leaders at the intersection of business, technology, and innovation. If you like what you hear, we'd be grateful if you give us a rating on iTunes or through whatever other source you use for podcasts. And please subscribe so you don't miss a thing. Thank you. My guest today is Ed McLaughlin. Ed's the president of operations and technology at MasterCard, a company with revenues of nearly $17 billion annually. In this role, Ed oversees all of MasterCard's technology functions, including information security and technology operations, the global network, and processing platforms. Prior to joining MasterCard, Ed was the group vice president of product and strategy at Metavante. In this interview, we discuss how Ed balances innovation with risk mitigation and how security can be used as a strategic weapon. We also discuss his thoughts on the current pandemic, including how it will result in a permanent shift in certain behaviors, but why bold pronouncements of the future of work can't be made just yet. Finally, we discuss Ed's views on blockchain and MasterCard's lab group, whose job is to investigate new technologies, along with a variety of other topics. Before we get to our interview, I wanted to introduce you to our sponsor, Zoho, and the company's president, Timothy Casby. Prior to taking on his current role, he was the chief information officer of a number of companies, including Reliance Industries, Sears, Intrexon, and the Warehouse Group. He's now at Zoho, a most unusual enterprise software company, and wanted to share some perspectives from it. Timothy, take it away. Of over 100 apps Zoho has in the market, Zoho Sign is my favorite. Our product to execute paperless electronic signatures. I don't know about you, Peter, but I seem to sign a lot of documents. Banks, tax, recruitment, vendor-related documents seem to require signatures every single day. During the pandemic, hundreds of thousands of users globally have conducted their business of signing millions of documents electronically using Zoho Sign. Also, we are GDPR and CCPA compliant. Our sign does integrate with dozens of popular systems, both inside and outside Zoho. And as usual, we fulfill the promise of the cloud of bringing to market affordable technology for all. You will find Zoho sign to be at least 50% less expensive than our nearest competitor. And that can make a dent in your budget. Try Zoho sign at zoho.com slash sign. Thanks, Timothy. And now on to the interview. Ed McLaughlin. Welcome to Technovation. It's great to speak with you. Peter, it's always great to connect. Yeah, well, likewise, I appreciate that. Ed, I thought we would begin with, uh, with your current role. You are the, uh, the, the president of operations and technology of MasterCard, uh, a company you've been with uh, for nearly 15 years now. And I wonder if you could take a moment and describe your purview as the president of operations and technology. Uh, absolutely. And it's, it's nice to have a title, which in some ways actually says what it does. So <laughs> the way I think about it is operations is who we are. It's what we do. We run national critical infrastructure. We want to run one of the world's largest payment networks. And so if you are what you do, that's the operations for MasterCard. And the technology is really what we become. So we're also responsible for developing that next generation of applications, our participation in the future of payments and what it looks like. So we're constantly exploring and adopting new technologies to make that operation better. And it's interesting, Ed, as you describe that, that what we do and what we become, naturally there is a, there's an aspect of that of making sure that what you do is done well uh, and done securely. And as yeah. you think about what you become, I, it, it harkens uh, to ideas of innovation and taking some risks, calculated risks uh, as to where things are going. And I wonder, how do you think about that balance? You know, on the one hand, the, the, the former would suggest the need to, you know, manage and mitigate risk, make sure that things are 
operating, you know, very excellently at all times. The the, the latter being uh, experimentation, as I say, taking risks, uh, not batting a thousand, because uh, if you are doing so, then you're not innovating. How do you think about the balance between those two? I, I, I love how you expressed it. It is absolutely a balance. And one question I do get is in some organizations, they separate out the dev side or the technology side from the operations side. And that is something I think is just flat out wrong. Because coming from the dev side, I always say what you're building is an operation. The experience we talk about isn't how you've designed what's on the glass and how it lives every day, every time at that moment of truth that that customer, that corporate, that you know, consumer tries to use what, what you're providing for them. So I actually think this idea that everything is in service to the operation, to the value you're creating, drives what you do with technology. And if you do that, and if you start with that attitude, I actually think you can be more aggressive more innovative. And I'll give you just one example that's so very, very important to MasterCard. You'll hear it come through everything we talk about is security is our highest principle. But I think too often people think security is an impediment to innovation rather than you use innovation to accelerate what's most important, including things like security. So I remember when people were talking years ago before we invented tokenization and everything else, people were talking about mobile payments. And the ins, you know, what compromises do you make to have device-based payments? I'm like, if I have a five millimeter piece of plastic with a chip stuck to it versus an $800 device with an operating system and connectivity and biometric identifications, the question is, how do I use the new environment to do what we do better? And so as long as you hold to your principles of the operation, I think it allows you to trial, to experiment, to understand, and to innovate faster. That's very interesting. Talk a bit about, if you would, Ed, the team that's underneath you. And I'd also be interested, as you talk about the coming together of disciplines that even today, many organizations of comparable size and complexity to your own keep them separate, what sorts of new skills or, uh, you know, abilities you look for in the team uh, underneath you? Yeah, and and, and I think that you, you have hit a really important thing. I don't, once you start with the organization, you're already in trouble. Right? You know, when the meeting starts with an org chart, you're dead. So the first and most important thing we do is we always try to align around the objective or align around the output. And everyone works for the service. It, you work for the thing. And if you do that, and we have what we call a program model where everyone works whatever discipline. This includes product and everything else. Whatever disciplines you're organized around, what the customer gets from you, what the value is you're trying to create. And then within it, we have... an you know, it's a term of art, but a guild model or specific disciplines. So if I'm a dev or if I'm a UX expert or I'm a security expert, I'm an architect, I'm a site reliability engineer, everyone in that discipline connects across the whole enterprise. So the new tools, the new techniques, the learnings, the host incident reviews we all learn from and things like that can be shared. So you belong to a discipline, but you work for an organization which is entirely tuned and focused to the output. You are what you do kind of view. So I think that really does bring the development and operations in in a a much deeper way. And I'll tell you, one thing we struggled with, I talked to a lot of folks that they do, is I think a lot of time, or at least early on, I'm I'm going to do my TED Talk on, you know, agile journeys and microservices. Aren't we all just a little embarrassed now, right? Because I think there's been a lot of learnings in the industry as we, we adopted great things out of those practices. 
but they're very specific practices. I think sometimes it was missed if you truly want to be agile. The strongest signal back into your decision-making has to be the feedback loop from the operation of the thing you've already put out. And too often, I think organizations thought agile just meant I could pump stuff out faster rather than developing that feedback. So by bringing the operational and development side much closer together, you do have devs wondering what's going on in the operational talking about latency, understanding the resiliency that has to be there. And, and I think that's what becomes really important because it really does focus you on that North Star of the operation being the experience. And so we do it by, like I said, organizing around the objective, building and continue to build really strong disciplines so people bring their skills to that objective. But the organizational model really is starts with the run, and that's what you build for. That's great. Ed, you were one of the first people to make me aware of thinking of security. You've already alluded to it. I just want to delve yeah. a little bit deeper, deeper into this. Security, not as uh, you know, a, a series of activities that are like insurance for the organization, but actually potentially a source of revenue growth by virtue yes. of being able to demonstrate uh, how secure one's organization is. And obviously in the business that you're in, you have very sensitive data um, for many, many people across society. And so talk a little bit about this. You won, in fact, won a Forbes CIO Innovation Award around this whole concept of using security as a strategic weapon, um, yes. as a means of playing offense, and in, in addition to the more traditional way of thinking about it, of playing defense. Elaborate on that further, if you would. Yeah, and I think it holds true for, certainly MasterCard for what we do in payments, but I think it holds true for any organization, right? We are in the midst of this convergence where, in many ways, almost everything we do is online. And that is how we express and how we connect to our customers. So I, I think we were lucky in some ways that we saw it and felt it first because we're moving money, because of the identification, and the other work we have to do. But I think it applies to every organization. And where we really started with it was that balance you talked about. A lot of times there was a friction where anything, anything you would do to make it more secure made it less convenient. So your consumers would either try to circumvent it or you wouldn't get the adoption or usage you want. And we looked at the shift to digital and the access to the data and the powerful new techniques with machine learning and AI that we could apply to say, how do we take this unprecedented change in the industry to simultaneously both make it more secure and more convenient and accessible? And if you can make it the way you want things to happen to be the best way, that's where you get an incredible virtuous cycle. So the one example that we talked about, I guess about a year ago when we were together, was uh, what we did with our, we call it our decision management platform, which I won't go into depth. This is engineering marvel. It sits at the heart of the network, and it looks at every transaction that comes through in tens of milliseconds. We have about two and a half billion profiles in it with a um, couple of hundred analytical vectors that can all be used to constantly update one transaction back and see what's going on. It's a great thing if you're a geek, but what does it do? And that was the whole point is we actually saw the biggest issue in our business wasn't fighting fraud. It was all the false positive that the relatively simple rules-based systems that had been put in place were doing. So merchants were losing business. Consumers were being inconvenienced. So when we fired up and applied a lot of innovation and a lot of really great engineering, the improvement was, yeah, we, you know, more than half cut, cut fraud by more than half. But there was like a 6x drop in false positives. And that was a huge business. 
that made every MasterCard work better. It made merchants sell more. It, it led to that satisfaction. So I think people keep thinking of security as the thing you have to put up with that prevents you from doing the thing you want to do. Rather than apply it right, it's how you can make everything you do better. That's really great. I, such a such a great insight. And as you said at the outset of that, uh, something that others should take note of is it probably applies across most industries, I would imagine. Um, yeah. I wanted to also ask you, Ed, uh, as we talk, uh, we are in the throes, of course, of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and yours as an organization, during good times or bad, has a tremendous amount of insight and data based upon how businesses and individuals are spending during these times. I wonder if you could take a moment and reflect on some of the learnings. Um, you know, this is, you alluded to a moment ago, the increased digitization of business yeah. by necessity, given the fact that it's not safe for us to, to get together as we once did. Uh, and the fact that, uh, by extension now, my, my, uh, my word's not yours, uh, that now th- those businesses that have more successfully made the leap towards developing digital revenue streams are weathering the storm better than those that had not done so. I wonder if you can maybe um, offer some thoughts uh, based on some of the learnings that you have had in in assessing uh, where where we stand right now and sort of how you've read some of the key leaves built you. Certainly, and another things we're seeing. I think one of the things we've seen isn't necessarily a massive shift in how things were happening, but rather a massive acceleration in trend lines we were already seeing. I think a decade ago with what smartphones started doing, you know, we were tracking for just a quick example, how much of our transactions come from the classic physical plastic versus any other method, a a virtual or a digital method for that. And it had um, gotten to the point where it was about 60, 40, 60% still being in the plastic world, moving two to 3% a year. So we felt we were about three years away from, digital superiority, right, or or digital supremacy, whatever you'd want to call it. Well, that actually happened in the first quarter of this year. Because what I think is this idea of convergence, always being on and being on and being with you, that every device will be used for commerce and every connected device can be anywhere. What we're now seeing is people would be shopping online at traditional merchants, right? The buy online, pick up in store, suddenly local coffee shops, and all sorts of people you never saw before rapidly adopted that. And consumers are using it, and they're liking it. Things like contactless technology. You know, we've seen markets. Germany was a classic market that just had a huge cash bias. That it just always was that way. Something seventy-some percent of transactions were still in cash. I just saw a survey where seventy-five percent of Germans are saying they're avoiding cash, and want to use contactless now to make payments. So I think you had all the trend lines, and the good news is we had scaled technology that worked really, really well already in place. So then when that consumer demand had this massive shift, we were ready for it. And it's working well, and consumers are seeing it working. Now the next question becomes, how much of that is temporary? And how much of that is permanent? Are you going to just have this big reversion back to the mean as you know, eventually we all get back to whatever the next normal looks like? And for that one, I think what this has led to is I call it massive sampling. People doing things, work at home is another good example, where they hadn't really done it before. And now they're learning more about it. It won't mean it's the universal way you do something. But you've now sampled and experienced something, and you will use it contextually more. So one of the great things, and you probably remember for years, there was always questions of, will people use contactless payments? Well, all the way back in 2005, 
when first joined MasterCard, actually, we did our first uh, trial with the MTA in New York on contactless payments and subways and things like that. One of the things we saw in the data was when people tapped three times, they almost never went back to their prior behavior because it was more convenient, because they realized they tapped and it was more convenient and faster and it is secure and nobody died. And then you look to see where else you can start tapping. So I think what we've actually had is an, a massive shift in sampling and experimenting with technologies that might have happened over three years, happened in one quarter. And that's where I say I do think we're going to see a pretty permanent shift in certain behaviors. Not a universal shift, but a permanent shift in certain behaviors. Yeah, that's interesting. And I wonder, um, we see a number of, of great companies that have had this unbelievable growth as a result of uh the, our own cha- uh, these changes forced upon us. One thinks of like uh, video Clorox. collaboration, for instance. What was, what was that, Ed? Clorox. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly. Uh, and uh, but but you know, thinking about companies that yeah. provide video collaboration tools, like the one we're using right now, as, as an example. And some of these organizations, because they've gone at the data around Zoom, for instance, it was roughly 10 million users in December, 300 million come April. And, you know, you go through that level of growth and there's going to be some growing pains, understandably. Always. And, yeah. and, and I'm curious, what what was it about the steps that you've, you've also gone through growth, maybe not growth quite at that level, but uh, you've gone through tremendous growth as a result of, you know, you've talked about societal changes in a place like Germany, for instance, that are causing millions, if not tens of millions of people to change their habits. Talk a bit about the work done in years prior to give you, yeah. your organization the flexibility to to be able to grow, but to do so uh, with as few hiccups as possible. Yeah, and I think there's there's two sets of things to think about there, right? One of which is scaling the things that you're doing. That's most of what we're talking about here, right? The methods were there, contactless existed, and suddenly you have a huge shift in demand and being ready for that. There's also taking assets you've had and suddenly having to apply them in new ways. So, for example, work we were doing for government benefit distribution. Uh, we had all the bones that were there, but suddenly a huge amount of stimulus was being you know, looked to be pumped into society. So how do you reconfigure capabilities you already have to rapidly respond to new use cases? Both are really important. Uh, starting with the scaling one, um, that is one where, again, it's a benefit from running national critical infrastructure. We've always had to say we can't have a dependency on any given location. Uh, often I say resiliency is, you know, intentional inefficiency. So the ability to project capacity, to rapidly add capacity so you can scale that up were things we had invested in for a long time. So we were ready for big shifts in volume. Again, in the learning side, and I think everyone on the call has, has, has learned from this, when we were purely in the physical world, there were only so many ways, so many people could stick so many cards in so many gray box terminals. So you had pretty smooth curves there. And Christmas happened at the same time every year, and you could project that out in your headroom. What we were fortunate from is digital is a lot burstier. So we'd see things like Singles Day in Asia, and you get a huge spike, and you had to be ready for that. So some of our systems really had to adopt to that burstiness, which was a learning over the last, a heavy investment over the last couple of years. So when sort of like e-commerce and COVID became another episode of burstiness, Fortunately, we had a lot of those protocols in place, but you really had to stay in front of it. Uh, the other thing that was really important for us, again, foundational work paying off, is moving more and more to a services-based infrastructure. 
So when you wanted to approach something like government payment disbursements, you could say that's a lot like prepaid. It's a lot like what our send technology was doing for you know Uber paying their drivers in real time when they need to have, or you know Facebook using that so you could send money between accounts. So again, foundational technologies we put in place. Here's how you could have real-time payroll disbursements. Here's how you can have prepaid programs like we did with Direct Express because we serve the, the Social Security Administration for all the government disbursements there. You start putting those things together. That's really where the, the assembly of services becomes important. So I think we've always had that idea of you had to do the reliability. The systems had to work and how do you scale that? Learning digital burstiness and getting to a more services-oriented architecture so reliable, scaled things can be rapidly assembled in new ways. So I think that's how some of the foundational work really helped us when you had this kind of black swan event. Yeah. One, one other thing I, I just would, is it did emphasize for us, this is more on the tech side than the ops side. Because we all know you have multiple redundant data centers and back it up and no single point of failure. And we've lived that for decades. But this was the first time we really had to think about the people in a different way. You know, we used to think about system viruses, not human viruses. So having everyone who knows everything about something only in one place is another single point of failure. So when we think about critical systems, how do we make sure in multiple tech hub locations, do you have people who know about it? Do you have people who can support it? So that way, not only do you always remember they're somewhere, somewhere else, and it just helps with documentation and virtualized workforce and things of that nature. You also don't have a single point of failure in your human capital just like you would never have in your physical or system cap. I like that. Thank you. And I, what a great analogy you draw to that as well. Um, so I wanted to also ask you, as somebody who's focused on emerging payments for so long, Ed, uh, and you've already talked about uh, you know, some of the, the trends towards contactless, for instance, um, what are some of the, are there areas that you had been investigating or beginning to delve into that you think are going to be further accelerated beyond that, that, that very good example um, as a result of some of the dynamics of the past three months? Oh, absolutely. And I think there's a whole set of things. And again, the, these were trend lines we've seen, but now new use cases, new accelerations around that. So we've been doing a tremendous amount of work in account-to-account -account payments. We see as governments around the world are taking these older batch-based ACH systems, two- to three-day clearing systems, and are moving them to a more real-time footing. So, for example, the clearinghouse in the United States putting up a fast ACH system, an account-to-account -account system. That's all leveraging software from a company that became part of MasterCard a few years ago called Vocalik. So we're working with governments around the world about modernizing their payments infrastructure. And again, this idea of accelerating everything and, and, and what happens as you move to a more cashless, more digital world, that becomes important. So I think about our network is really ABCD. You know, account to account payments are a big part of it. All of what I'd call classic card, even when the card's not there, we need a better way of talking about it. But the ISO-based transaction sets, often which were initiated from a plastic card, now much more often being initiated from a device. But how do you handle those? And those are scaled and they work incredibly well. Blockchain payments fit into that. that that's my B. So we're doing things with like R3, looking at cross-border payments. And I think the mistake when people look at something like blockchain isn't how can you take something that works really, really well and try to implement it in a more awkward technology. Rather, where are things that aren't working pretty well that you can apply a new and novel technology to do better? 
And again, it's just another rail or another way that we can support the network. And then the D part's really interesting because we're seeing a lot of work in digital identity right now and also driven through things like open banking, where the data flows, the associated data flows with payment transactions or even independent uh, from payment transactions are becoming really, really important. I think this shift to, to more digital interactions, I'll just go back to government disbursement, highlights how well do we know you're you, the account's the account, you have the right to know what you're doing online. There's one other area I'll just touch on quickly because we talked a lot about security. Over the last couple of years, we've actually elevated privacy as a peer value, as a peer concern to security within the network. So there's a lot more information that consumers are now giving. And I think testing information, healthcare information, some of the tech lash tech backlash, the tech lash is people concerned about how their data is being handled. So we think it's essential that we also express that we're good stewards of the information that is used only for what it's intended, that it will be secured for consumers and they can know and trust who they're doing business with and how that's being handled. And I think that'll be an even bigger trend coming out of this as people think about where's their data and how's their data being you referenced blockchain briefly there, and you were yeah. an early adopter, have a number of patents actually um, associated with blockchain. And, you know, to my knowledge, one of the bigger users have a lot of great use cases of it. Talk a little bit about this. This is one of those, you know, it was a, a, a brilliantly bright, uh, hot trend for a while. Yeah. And there have been some who've dipped their toe in the water and have, have decided it isn't for them. It's not the path forward. Whereas there are other very meaningful examples like your own. Uh, which show that, you know, given the right context, it's a very powerful, you know, solution, so to say. Talk, talk a bit about your perspective now as somebody who has deeper than most experience with it. Yeah, I think the first thing on that is with any new technology, you need to understand it deeply. So we took it into the labs, we built our own chains, we took it apart. And I think what, what tends to happen is kind of like the old Gartner hype cycle. Um, it's a new technology. You take a lot of overhead to operate in environments where it's hard to establish trust. Well, that's great. So where are the environments that's hard to establish trust, the, the overhead that something like a blockchain gives you are useful for that. I think that's where we really looked at it. And we're one of the top, I think we're top two or three in patents around blockchain as we looked at how it could be used. But I kept trying to remind people, when you say blockchain, it's like saying database, right? This is just a general purpose technology and where and how you use it and where it's better than the alternatives is the key question there. So we're looking at, again, things where the persistence, the difficulty in establishing trust, multi-party, that's all really unique and novel. And it's kind of, a friend of mine calls it horseless carriage innovation. <laughs> uh, a car was a horse, it wasn't a horseless carriage. It was an entirely different vehicle that you could do entirely different things with. And I think too often we looked at blockchain and we tried to turn it into a carriage. So we don't focus on the stuff that works really, really well that consumers already have and they like. We're saying where are things that haven't been done before that a new and novel approach could improve upon. And I think that applies to every technology, including blockchain. So I'm kind of an enthusiast around what it could do, but it starts from the basis of what does it do differently from what we already have. You've, you've uh, relative to innovation, you've, you've offered a lot of really interesting insights, Ed, and there are a couple I want to call back out. Uh, you talked about the need to fully understand a trend as it's rising, and yeah. so really immerse yourself in it, understand it from the ground up. You also talked about how the most powerful application, needless to say, is for the 
the issue that's yet resolved, uh, mm -hmm. the gap that needs to be filled. And talk a little bit about how you think about that experimentation. You've referenced the labs. You've talked about uh, yeah. what sound like groups of people who I, I, I presume their primary uh, set of responsibility is to immerse themselves, become knowledgeable of these rising trends, and to make calls as to which ones apply and which ones don't. Can you talk a little bit further about that process? Yeah, I, I, I'd love to. I think you're right. I think when trends happen, we haven't said 5G yet. I'm not sure why, but I'll make sure I put it out there. <laughs> no, I think when, when trends happen, there's always a lot of enthusiasm around. And half of it's hooey and half of it is profoundly meaningful. And our jobs as technologists is to be able to sort those things out. I think this is probably an audience that usually kills in the right room. You know, I always say the best thing about AI is at least it got people to stop talking about microservices, right? You know, <laughs> so um, I think it's the same thing here. So what we do is we have a, a labs group whose job is to look at new technology. We have a technology and architecture team that really does the same thing, um, looking at different sets of technologies, one on novel application, the other on how we take what we do and constantly say, can we apply research? We're not pure research shop, we're an applied research shop. But what is happening, what is changing, which allows us to do what we do better? So one, you're pushing further, the other is relentless and constant improvement of those things that you already do. But as you understand the technologies, and you have to be insatiably curious about it, it then comes back to what's the problem you're trying to solve? And does it do it better? And I always say, if something does what we do better, we'll be the first to adopt it. If it doesn't do what we do as well, well, we'll beat it in the commercial marketplace. And so it's not this fascination about how it works. You need to understand how it works. The fascination has to be what's it for? What can it do differently and what does it do better? And I'll leave you maybe with one final thought that we talk about a lot, which is you have to separate principles from practices. Maybe I'll start, you know, go back to the beginning. Security. That's a principle, right? Anything we can do which allows us to keep our promise to consumers, to our customers, that we're good stewards of the information, that we keep it secure, that advances our business through security, that's the highest principle. The practices by which you pursue it can, would, and should change. So as perhaps in the past in our network, you'd emphasize a defense in depth, or as my CFO calls it, expense in depth. And you now want to move rapidly in this zero trust principles. Why? Well, the practice is very different. But it's because you can go after your principle and hold to your principles better. Mm. That's interesting, Ed. I, I wanted to return to the, the, the current crisis and ask you, you know, this has been, again, a, a big experiment that's been thrust upon all of us, not going to offices, not getting on airplanes. I know you, like me, are often on airplanes, and it's you got to yeah. kind of get used to as nice it is to sleep in your own bed uh, every night, get used to a new rhythm of business. And I wonder what learnings you have drawn out of this experience and in interacting with an enormous team that you have, but not being able to be, by and large at least, in the same room as them. Um, and, and maybe as an extension, if you don't mind, uh, what indelible marks you think uh, have been made as a result of maybe some of the silver linings of this experience? Yeah. Yeah, and, 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 and the first thing and what I always start with is the caution, right? We are in the midst of an incredibly unique situation. And a friend of mine likened it to you don't get married in Vegas when you're on a bender, right? It's, 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 you, know, you have to recognize it's not a context where you make permanent and life-changing decisions. So I see bold pronouncements about the future of work based on six weeks of sample size in the midst of an aberrant condition. I, I just think that's ridiculous. Right. I do think, though, we've learned a lot 
about how we can virtualize, how we use these tools. You know, very early on, this is again building on stuff we've done. About three years ago, we created what we called the Employee Digital Experience Group. And we brought together all of the desktop tools. And we said, you really go to the office to use digital tools. And how do you make that the primacy thing? And then say, what's the environment around it? So when we had to port that to different locations like working at home, it really was you're using the same stuff just in a different location. So when you think about how people collaborate, how they work together, I will say, I think with this shift to, to, to work at home, there's a lot of social capital I see that built up over years that we're kind of burning through. And you can get more productivity if you're doing the same thing. But what you learn, it makes it a lot harder to do new things. So that's what I'm saying. You've got to be really careful about getting too much signal from the current context. And I think what we'll learn is there's a balance. And we can keep optimizing that balance. So just like consumers who had never sampled or tested before, I think there are perhaps a lot of leaders who now said, okay, I can, I hate to say it, trust people to work at home. I don't know. You can trust them in the office. You got to trust them at home or learning how to use these tools. And I think what we'll learn is there's probably a different and better balance. But the other thing is, when I hear work at home, all jobs are different. We've got people who throw switches and pull cables. It's not going to be a work at home job. People are talking about flexibility in hours. Well, if you're supporting a customer, you got to be there when the customer's got to be there. If you're supporting an operation, you got to be there whenever the thing goes yet. Right? So I, I think maybe what it is, is it, it's an expansion of what people are thinking is possible which is awesome. It's a massive, uncontrolled, forced experiment, which is also kind of awesome. And I think as we go through this, it'll allow us to, to, to learn how we can optimize further. But I still think people work together. I still think collaboration is essential. I still think there's ways that we learn, interact, which are just integral to who we are as people. And none of that goes away. But there's a lot we can do differently and better, and that's kind of cool to think about. Yeah, it's fantastic. Well, Ed McLaughlin, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing some perspectives of, of from your time as a as a leader and an innovator uh, in a company that has such a fascinating context, uh, not just today, but always uh, in the economy. Uh, thank you for sharing your perspectives on what the future might bring. Uh, as always, it's been a great conversation. Hey, Peter, always a pleasure to chat. Take care. Excellent. Thanks for tuning in. Please join me on Thursday when my guest will be Shardul Shah, a partner at the venture capital firm Index Ventures.